This Star News Media Podcast is presented by North Chase Family Dentistry. Open evenings, Saturdays, and they probably take your insurance. Visit them on the web at NorthChaseFamilyDentistry.com. Hello, and welcome to a special Christmas episode of Cape Fear Unearthed, a podcast from Star News Media. As always, I am your host, Hunter Ingram, and I'm a reporter for the Star News here in Wilmington, North Carolina. When I'm not sharing the airwaves with you on this podcast, you can read my byline on coverage of the city, the local film and television industry, and my weekly TV Hunter column. Now, we're just a few weeks away from the start of season two of the podcast, but with the holiday season in full swing, we here at Cape Fear on Earth figured we would take a festive detour from our standard brand of persisting legends, historical oddities, and mysterious figures to dig up some of southeastern North Carolina's best Christmas stories. Now, just because we're taking a brief departure from uncovering some of the region's darker and seedier tales, that doesn't mean that this week's stories aren't any less fascinating and influential. Not only does one story explore an iconic symbol of Wilmington that made it world famous for more than half a century, another recounts a Christmas tradition that dates back to colonial times. This week, I'm going to share three short stories that I hope will get you in the Christmas spirit, and at the very least, bring to light Wilmington's own history with the holiday season. We'll begin by traveling back to early Wilmington to learn about the John Cooner's tradition. And then we're going to fast forward to the 20th century for the story of the world's largest living Christmas tree. Finally, we'll close out the episode with a special reading of The Christmas Flounder, a story the Star News runs every Christmas Eve. So grab a cup of hot chocolate, a cozy blanket, and settle in as I share with you the stories of Christmas in the Cape Fear. In the 21st century, the sounds of Christmas are almost inescapable even before the Thanksgiving turkey is carved. The stampede of shoppers busting down the doors on holiday deals, the familiar tune of Christmas music humming over the speakers, and the sound of extended family crammed into one home for a party are all things that set the tone and mood of the holidays. But in the days after the Revolutionary War and all the way through post-Civil War Reconstruction, it was a different tune that could be heard wafting through the streets of Wilmington the week of Christmas and New Year's. You could hear them coming from well down the street. Their music was catchy and familiar. Their enthusiasm was unmistakable. And when they came around, kids fled to the street to watch and adults followed close behind. It was a tradition known as John Coonering, And its participants, known as the John Cooners, were the black slaves who lived and worked throughout Wilmington. It closely resembles the John Canoe Festival still celebrated in Jamaica, but some suggest it has roots in the customs of African tribes brought to American soil by kidnapped slaves. Others attribute its characteristics to something derived from French culture. And while there's disagreement among all of these theories, one thing is for certain. It is widely believed that the practice of John Coonering was honed and celebrated during Christmas and New Year's in Wilmington, North Carolina. The John Cooners are said to have put on quite the show. The participants, all men and numbering in groups of four to twenty, wore tattered fabrics of all colors sewn into their clothes, outlandish masks, and some even dressed in drag, all so they could take to the streets to perform and entertain. They danced to the music they composed in the weeks leading up to the jovial season most of which consisted of repeating lines and loud noises. But for the Cooners, it was all about the sound and the energy. Some pounded out the rhythm on makeshift drums, while the others struck triangles, 
blew on cow horns, rattled jawbones and ribs, and they all danced to the beat. They would travel house to house, stopping whenever the sound of their arrival pulled families from their homes to catch a glimpse of the alluring racket. White children would sometimes join in the procession, and the John Cooners were often rewarded with gifts and desserts, a show of goodwill not often given to slaves of the period. Noted local historian James Sprunt is quoted as saying, the John Cooners were a chief attraction of the Christmas season since colonial times. But the tradition fell out of fashion in the black community as of the 1880s, abandoned by its very own participants, who felt it was demeaning to lower themselves to entertain white folks. Still, John Coonering remains a part of Wilmington's holiday identity, and is still performed in places throughout the state, and occasionally on a local stage, as an homage to those originators. When so much of the Christmas holiday is widespread custom and iconography, John Coonering is something Wilmington can claim as its own, even if it did make its way up to other coastal towns. But at the holidays, it was the time for John Cooner's groups to shine, and in the streets of Wilmington, they didn't waste the spotlight. For many families and communities, it's not Christmas time until the bristled tree is strung with lights, decked out with ornaments, nestled in a festive skirt, and weighed down by an assortment of tightly wrapped gifts. More so than any other decorative or expressive icon of the holidays, it's the Christmas tree that invites people to gather and translates the communal goodwill of the season. Just think, without the Christmas tree around which to lock hands, the Who's of Whoville would have never sung their Who song, and the Grinch's heart would have never grown three sizes. In the past century, the Christmas tree has become the object around which families make traditions. Whether it's browsing the store or tree farm for the perfect spruce or fir, and all the way to Christmas morning when they pull presents from underneath its branches. But it wasn't always the centerpiece of the season. Germans are credited with first introducing Christmas trees, as we would recognize them today, into their homes in the 16th century, bringing the evergreen shades of the outdoors inside during the bitter cold months of winter. More specifically, Martin Luther of the Protestant Reformation is said to have been on a stroll home one evening and became so enamored with the light of stars glistening off the snow-covered trees that he brought one inside to share what he had seen. The earliest versions of these were decorated with fruits, nuts, cookies, and candles, perfectly positioned so as not to set the tree ablaze. A century later, as America was finding its footing as a country, Christmas trees were considered to be pagan desecrations of the Christian holiday. Some towns and colonies even forbid decorations on the holy occasion, punishing those who did anything but attend church service in recognition. Most historians agree it wasn't until 1846 when England's Queen Victoria and Prince Albert were seen decorating a Christmas tree in their home in a sketch in the London Times that the custom called on with the masses. From there, it spread throughout the world, absorbing the cultural fashion sense and traditions of the communities it touched. Inevitably, families, communities, and even countries began to try and outdo one another for the best, brightest, and most importantly, biggest Christmas tree in all the land. Today, we see that challenge manifested in the towering displays of Christmas supremacy at Rockefeller Center in New York City and the White House in Washington, D.C. But for a time in the 20th century, Wilmington played a central role in claiming an important holiday title for America. 
it was considered to be the home of the world's largest living Christmas tree. In its prime, the tree that garnered such a distinction was, rightfully so, hard to miss. The tree stood in the former Hilton Park on the north side of Wilmington, at a whopping 75 feet tall, with branches that stretched outward some 110 feet in any direction. Listening to those who saw the tree firsthand, it was quite the spectacle. Historians pegged the tree at at least 300 years old when its seasonal potential was first tapped in 1928. That year, the city draped an estimated 750 lights and a good helping of Spanish moss on the tree for its inaugural season. Atop the tree was the shimmering final touch, the Star of the East. After that first year, the unique spectacle became a favorite among the Christmas rush. Not only was the tree notable for its immense size, it gained its title because unlike the massive trees shipped into the country's epicenters for public enjoyment each year, the Wilmington tree never left its roots to be enjoyed. It was a living part of the city. The tree was the talk of the town for years until word got out to the rest of the state, the country, and eventually the world. It was draped with lights, Spanish moss, and garland every year like clockwork, except for a period during World War II. From 1941 to 1945, the dire needs of the war effort and an understandably diminished appetite for holiday cheer left the tree dark. But in 1946, it came roaring back. In the November 23, 1946 edition of The State magazine, a precursor to Our State, a local resident wrote in to announce the tree would be lit once again, and Fox movie tone cameras were coming to film the big lighting ceremony, the footage of which would be shown in front of movies on big screens across the country. The ceremony featured all of the city's church choirs combined into one mighty voice and no less than 40 Santas on site. It was a sight worthy of the big screen, but for Wilmington, it was the return of a tradition that would persist for decades to come. Under the tree's branches, residents would gather each year for Yuletide cheer. The tree attracted so many children looking to still a moment of Santa's time that the city hired some 30 Santas and put them through an actual Santa Academy, complete with a graduating diploma. From its revival, the tree's popularity grew and its lights shined brighter. Literally. In a bulletin sent out in 1959 by the Wilmington Chamber of Commerce, it noted that the annual stringing of lights on the tree had ballooned to 4,500 each year, and its helping of Spanish moss now weighed five tons. Years later, a piece of City of Wilmington promotional material claims it was strapping the tree with 7,000 lights annually. The tree's annual spectators also grew from 75,000 in 1950 to more than 100,000 in 1959. When the Santas weren't in class on the site, the tree was used for city holiday events, nativity scenes, and choirs of different races and communities joined together for choral concerts, the voices of which were projected outward by the speaker system perched high up in the tree's branches. The tree became a world-renowned stop on Christmas tours and brought acclaim to the city for decades. But the annual weight of lights, Spanish moss, and the job of hosting thousands of people not to mention a long life bearing the brunt of Mother Nature's hurricanes and ice storms, took a toll on the icon. By the end of the century, the tree's outstretched branches had shriveled and shrunk inward, bringing its once sprawling presence to under 50 feet tall and 75 feet wide. 
a support pole was eventually fixed to the tree to hold its weight and fight its frailty. But in 2012, it was retired. Three years later, in November 2015, the withering tree was removed from where it had stood with its roots in the earth for what likely exceeded 400 years. With time, all holiday traditions change. We create new customs and traditions out of the experiences of our youth and with our families. We celebrate with new people and in new places. And we forge new memories tied to the holidays. But we also hold on to the old ones as well. And Wilmington's Christmas tree is not something those who experience this grandeur will ever forget. In 1987, the German town of Zellam Hammersbach took claim of the world's largest living Christmas tree title, with a showstopper measuring 102 feet tall. But that didn't stop Wilmington's annual tradition of lighting its tree until it absolutely couldn't anymore. Another town will take the title someday, and likely more after that. But for several decades, the world's largest living Christmas tree shined bright in Wilmington's backyard. As we've discussed with the world's largest living Christmas tree and John Coonering, everyone has their traditions that they roll into the holiday season. Some slip through our fingers with the passage of time and age, while others we hold on to more tightly. We at the Star News have our own tradition that we've held on to for more than 30 years. Every Christmas Eve, we publish an editorial titled Floundering in Tradition, and it's the story of the Christmas flounder. A tall tale spawned from the stories of one of our own, Paul Genowine, nearly a half a century ago. Paul was a career newsman who reported on the Wilmington community for four decades before retiring his byline in 1984. But his legacy lives on with the story of the Christmas flounder, a salty supposed tradition of circumstance and skill for local fishermen that readers and editors of the then Wilmington Morning Star and other state publications took his gospel until it was revealed to be a good-hearted fabrication in his obituary in 2000. The story had its origins, in fact. Gentlewine's widow told the paper he did see fishermen gigging for fish in the night, to which he said, they're getting their Christmas flounder. While his story may not be steeped in fact, it had already permeated the community. People vouched for it, made recipes to support its claims of a palatable alternative to a Christmas feast, and continued to demand its publication. While it's no the night before Christmas, it's a story that belongs to the Cape Fear region. So to close out this Christmas episode and our first year of Cape Fear Unearthed, we're going to bring this tradition into the age of podcasting with a reading of Genoine's story. So please sit back and enjoy The Christmas Flounder. T'was the night before Christmas, and all through the sound, not a creature was stirring, not even a flound. Er. Anonymous. If there's an old-timer in your house today, he's probably not reminiscing about the grand old tradition of the Christmas flounder. It's practically forgotten. The Christmas flounder is a yuletide custom unknown outside southeastern North Carolina. According to Paul Genowine, the late veteran newsman, who was the world's only authority on the matter. As is the case with many traditions, the origin of the Christmas flounder is obscured in the mist of memory. But according to Mr. Genowine, it apparently began during the Great Depression, when people in this area were even poorer than usual. Buying and stuffing a turkey for Christmas dinner was out of the question for many. Something else was needed. 
something that poor folks could procure in the days before food stamps. And so it came that one Christmas Eve, in the reign of Franklin the King of Four Terms, the merry glow of kerosene lanterns, and for those who could afford the Rayovax, flashlights gleamed over the waters of the sound. Westward waiting, still proceeding, went wise men who knew the dull-witted fishes would be sleeping in the mud at that time of night. Suddenly, the sharp splash of steely gigs shattered the starry stillness. Next day, the unfortunate flounders, lovingly stuffed with native delicacies such as oysters, crabs, collards and grits, graced Christmas tables all over the area. Non-Baptists, who knew a reliable bootlegger, accompanied the humble dish with a jelly glass of high-octane cheer. It was a tradition born of hardship, but it is unique and deserves to be remembered as part of the folklore of the Lower Cape Fear. That's it for this Christmas episode of Cape Fear Unearthed. Thank you so much for joining me. With this episode, we're going to be closing out the podcast for 2018. But don't worry. We'll be back for a second season of 10 new episodes beginning in January. Until then, be sure to share your thoughts on this week's episode on Twitter with the hashtag CFUnearth. You should also join our Facebook group, where I will be posting the latest on when the podcast will return. I will also be posting pictures of the world's largest living Christmas tree on our page for anyone curious to see it in all its glory. And I'm also going to be sharing this year's reprint of the Christmas Flounder story on Christmas Eve. You can find that group by searching Cape Fear Unearthed on Facebook. Also, rate and subscribe us on iTunes. We'd love to hear your thoughts, and that helps more people find the podcast. Finally, you can find a list of all the books, articles, and resources used in researching this podcast in the show notes of each episode. Cape Fear Unearthed is written, edited, and hosted by me, Hunter Ingram. You can find more of my work at starnewsonline.com. I want to send out a special thanks to our editor, Adam Fish, and WHQR Studios in downtown Wilmington, where we recorded this episode. Until 2019, we at Cape Fear Unearthed want to wish you and yours a very Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays. And don't forget, get out and explore the Cape Fear region on your own. What you learn might just surprise you. Thank <laughs> you.